Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jason Roncancio, who researches innovation and entrepreneurship at the Free University of Brussels in Belgium. Prior to his time at the university, Jason spent eight years in the biotechnology and public health sector and one year as a technology transfer officer at the University of Calderas in Colombia. Jason received an award from the Colombian Ministry of Health for his work using big data for water quality surveillance in the country. Jason has a PhD in innovation and entrepreneurship from the Free University of Brussels. Jason's doctoral research focused on the entrepreneurial university and academic entrepreneurship as drivers of social change and sustainability. In this research, Jason also addressed issues relating to technology transfer and entrepreneurship with high societal impact. In addition to his PhD degree, Jason has a degree in chemical engineering and an MBA, both from the Universidad Nacional de Colombia. Jason has also conducted master's studies in economics, advanced statistics, innovation, and data and algorithms for innovation. And with that extremely impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Jason. Oh, well, no, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's such a great pleasure to be here with you. Well, thank you so much again, Jason, for taking part in the podcast. I'm really excited to have you on. And I generally like to start the podcast off by asking my guests about their journey to tech transfer. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up at the Free University of Brussels in Belgium? Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm coming from far, actually, not only geographically, but also in terms of my my career as a researcher and professional. Uh, well, first of all, I am a chemical engineer myself, as you already said it in the introduction. Thanks for that introduction, by the way. Uh but actually, yes, after that, I jumped into a biotech company in Bogota. Uh, then I work in a governmental institution of public health in also in Bogota, uh, at least the first year. Then I, I moved to to a city that is called Manizales. It's, a, it's the coffee region of Colombia, basically. There I work in data and also in, in the social observatory of public health, mainly just um, Minding about the water water vigilance and some other topics related with water, water quality. Then I work as a technology transfer officer at the Caldas Universidad de Caldas or Caldas University. Um, although we don't really used to call it like that because yeah, the, the phenomenon of technology transfer is relatively new in, in emerging economies, but we were going to talk about it later. Uh, then when I used to work as a uh, well, I'm going back to the governmental institution of public health. When I used to work there, then I designed uh, a filter, a water filter that landed me uh, at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology uh, to study to study a course of innovation. There, there I met someone who told me 
Uh, well, the Organization of American States is actually providing scholarships for people with your profile, with a technical background, but probably a little bit interested in business, probably to conduct a study or at the doctoral level on, on technology transfer, entrepreneurship, innovation. And then I was quite interested about it. I, I thought to myself, why not? Uh, technology transfer, it sounds sexy, it sounds trendy, it sounds nice. And I just decided to apply and I got the scholarship. Uh, and that's how I landed in, in Belgium, particularly in Brussels, in the Free University of Brussels. It's a, it's a long journey. It's been a, a long journey, actually. Wow, that's quite a journey, Jason. And I just wanted to switch gears a little bit and let listeners know that the way you and I connected was I saw that you were in the process of completing a book entitled Entrepreneurial Universities as Agents of Social Change, Uncovering How Universities Can Contribute to Building a Better World by Using Knowledge and Entrepreneurship as a Force for Good. Can you tell us a little bit about what interested you in this topic and what led you to writing the book? Oh, thanks for that question, because I, of course, I love to, to speak about my own book. <laughs> but I would start by saying that this book is the outcome of my doctoral journey. You know, after having lived and experienced how it feels to work in, a, in an entrepreneurial university, also not only from a theoretical or academic perspective, but also as a practitioner, because I used to be a, a technology transfer officer. Uh, and... Writing up this book, it wouldn't have been possible without the fantastic guidance of great mentors in my in the in entrepreneurship, particularly. I'm talking about Maribel Guerrero and Siri Terhesen, fantastic mentors, and also in the domain of social entrepreneurship, which is my my supervisor now friend Nikolai Denchev. Uh, that's pretty much what I have to say about this particular part. But then, uh, what interested me in this topic. And what led me to to write in this book? So I would divide this thing into two main categories. So the first one would be my personal interest. So we go back. If I go back to my to my trajectory as a as a person and also as a as a professional, uh, when I was working in Bogota in the biotech company, I was often facing these, I would say, struggles to connect with universities. So I was at the other side of the force, working in a biotech company and looking for collaborations, probably looking for a, for some access work that probably we needed, or maybe some machinery to to conduct some sort of analysis, very fancy or very sophisticated analysis. But we didn't come with the machine, so we would reach it, we we would reach out back then a certain university, and they would always close, or most of the times they would close the door in our faces. Uh, particularly because back then there was this misconnection between universities and the private sector. Um, and we often he heard comments of academics saying, yeah, we don't, we don't care about the private sector. We just want to publish papers. That was pretty much the message. So to me, what that was shocking back then. So, and also when I was working in the governmental institution of public health, I was touched by the way my work was impacting the life of other people in the sense that I was just conducting water vigilance. And and when this does, it's not, it's not done properly, of course, someone is going to get sick. And then, of course, I was kind of touched by the way just one little action could could impact the the life of a, of a community in, in a vulnerable uh, region or, or, or in a in a poor community. Because I don't know if you knew about this, but but in Colombia, 
some of the farmers, they don't come with access to clean water. Oh, that sounds really challenging. Yeah, it's complicated. It's complicated because in the digital age, we still come with people that they don't count with access to clean water. And then the, one can wonder why, how is that possible? So, so there, just by looking at all these phenomenon, I, I was just thinking to myself, we should do more for these people. And if this is just only the case in Colombia where farmers, they have, I would say, I wouldn't say that they live uh, in, a, in a very sophisticated and fancy way. I wouldn't say that. But I would say that they could live better for sure. And I think academia and governments and society and industry as well, we can all work together towards improving the life of these individuals because they are actually putting the food in our tables. So, okay. So that was also something that was touching me quite a, quite a bit, to be honest. Then as a technology transfer officer at the Caldas University uh, or Universidad de Caldas, um, I was always confronted with this idea of one academic coming to me with his or her invention. And they would ask me, Jason, uh, I want to put this technology for a greater good of society. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it to good use. What should I do? And you know, there, my role was back then to try to license that invention or to try to transfer that invention to, to the industry or try to find a way to, to create value with it, but mainly economical value. And I faced that as a practitioner. So I was like, okay, uh, something else. There are a lot of things there to be done. And, and I have tried already as a practitioner. I was already at the other side of the force in the private company, then, I, then in the public institution, and then as a technology transfer officer. So I thought to myself, there is something that I probably I could do as, a, as an additional activity, or maybe I, I could also have my contribution there. Uh, so that's how I engaged into the PhD, and that's how I came up with this idea of, okay, what can entrepreneurial universities do for society? Uh, because, yeah, we see that now I'm connecting to the research journey because I was first talking about my pe personal interest. Now, with, the, in, in, with regards to the research journey, I would say that it is not only about the, my my personal interest, but probably were the drivers to to write this 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 sort of topic for my for my dissertation. Uh, it was mainly related as well with with what you can find there in the relevant scientific literature on entrepreneurship and innovation. And I'm talking particularly about the genesis of of, in my opinion, that was the 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 very much the origin of of what we call today innovation and entrepreneurship coming from universities. And let's talk about the Bidel Act in the US. Back then in, in 1980, this act that allowed academics to participate in the revenues uh, as a consequence of, of commercializing their research results in the US. So we see this phenomenon there. But then, then after that, we see that oh, the entire literature on entrepreneurship and innovation started emerging uh, or having subsets of the literature. And then we have technology transfer. Then we have uh, academic engagement, academic engagement in commercialization activities. Then we have as well entrepreneurship. Then we have academic entrepreneurship, and then we have entrepreneurial universities. And I can I cannot even I cannot even count the amount of papers we have so far published in this domain. And if we look at 
this domain from a, I would say a systematic perspective, you will see that most of this literature has been published or most of the studies has been con have been conducted there, mainly oriented to commercial purposes. Finding out ways on how can we catalyze, improve, strengthen, you name it, but mainly looking for ways in which we can, in how can we create more value with technologies coming from universities. So I was thinking to myself, okay, so there is not only a real problem there, out there, particularly in developing economies, because I come from a developing economy, but there is also there a knowledge gap to be filled, also with research. And sorry for my long answer, but I think uh, this is this is pretty much what, what moves my soul. So I was thinking to myself, maybe I'm gonna be, I'm gonna give you the best possible and the most complete answer possible. And, and I hope I have answered your question. <laughs> that was a great answer. And thank you, Jason. So Jason, before we get into the specifics about your research and upcoming book, I wanted to ask you about some of the terminology we're going to be using during this podcast. First, can you explain to us what you mean by entrepreneurial universities? Yeah, thank you for that question. So actually what happens there after the Beitel Act is that uh, with this act, a huge momentum was created that pushed universities towards uh, commercializing their research results. But that also implied back then that universities had to adapt their institutional strategy to also, let's say, take out these inventions uh, out of the university context. And they had to do that by connecting with industry, connecting with society in a certain way that I'm going to explain later. Uh, but not only by that, but because they also had to find ways uh, to please those academics that were interested in creating companies with their research results. Now I'm talking about a spin of creation. So universities were thinking, okay, so we have a spin of companies that are being created right now with research results. We have technology transfer that is happening probably in the, in the form of patents or licenses to industry. And then we have probably consulting services that are pro being provided to government, governmental agencies or some other stakeholders in, in the innovation ecosystem. But how are we going to adapt to properly measure what is happening and how are we going to adapt to uh, properly, let's say, operate and perform the best in the best way possible? So universities, they had to include in their institutional strategy as a third mission, they included uh, technology transfer and entrepreneurship. And probably for the ones who are not familiar universities, they, before the Beidol Act, they used to have two main, two main missions. So the first one is teaching, the second one is research. And after the Beidol Act, it was more evident that the, the third mission was needed. So the third mission was, was established officially as technology transfer and entrepreneurship. So universities with a third mission that is officially acknowledged as such, as technology transfer and entrepreneurship, they are known as entrepreneurial universities. and but not only that, universities that as an institution, as a whole, they behave entrepreneurially. It means they produce knowledge and then they create companies with that such a knowledge. And, and afterwards, they create money with such a knowledge. They are acknowledged as entrepreneurial universities, uh, at least according to some relevant scientific articles and, and authors that I have had the chance to, to read about and also to work with. Um, but actually, one of the arguments I have in my in my in my book in, is that that definition is a little bit is a narrow 
definition of entrepreneurial universities because it's not considering the social dimension of entrepreneurship. But we can talk about it, of course, later on. Another term I wanted to ask you about is you often refer to as social entrepreneurship. Is that the same thing as social innovation? And if not, how are they different? Thank you for that question. Um, actually, when I refer to social entrepreneurship, a social entrepreneur is, is a person that explores business opportunities that have a positive impact on their community or in a society or in the entire planet. Whereas social innovation, it refers mainly to, to design, to implement new solutions that imply um, a product, a process, a organizational change. Uh, that probably at the end aims to improve the welfare and well-being of individuals and communities. So that's probably the main difference with one. You are including a clear change to improve something in your society. And with the other one, you, you might create a business while at the same time also impacting your society in a, in a positive way. So, Jason, let's get into your research a little bit. Um, I know you've spent significant time studying entrepreneurial universities in emerging countries. What are some of the key differences between entrepreneurial universities in developed and emerging countries that you found based on your research? Oh, that's a nice question. Thank you. So one of the main differences between entrepreneurial universities in developed and in emerging countries based on my research so I could probably name some of them. I, the first one is related with the intellectual property outcomes. Uh, just for the sake of the example, I would like to, I would like to say that uh, let's choose one year. For example, 2017. Uh, just the University of California produced or was granted something like 500 patents, and in the same year, just only in Colombia, putting all the universities together. Uh, I think the patent applications, it, it doesn't go higher than 150. So I think this is one, this is one of the main differences that, that can, can tell us a lot of things. So the first one is, of course, in such economies, in, in developing economies, uh, universities, they count with less resources that are relevant for innovation and entrepreneurship, at least based on technology, based on inventions, based on patents. Uh, that would be one of the main differences. Another one would be the approaches that the universities have towards entrepreneurship and technology, technology transfer particularly. In developed economies, you see that, that for example, university industry collaboration is driven by uh, the commercialization of a patent because the industry normally is interested in, in purchasing some patents or the knowledge that is being produced at universities in the form of licenses or patents. And when the industry looks for the university in emerging economies, there is this misconnection I was talking to you about at the beginning of the podcast, that often academics, they don't trust industry yet, at least not for these type of things. And universities, they don't, they don't count with the main material for technology transfer, as it is in this case, the patents or a license. The patent production activity of the United States is so high, particularly just one university is so high that technology transfers, that the technology transfer offices, they have to specialize in one single domain. So you have biotech tech, trans, tech transfer, IT tech transfer, software tech transfer, and so on and so forth. Whereas in countries, in the in emerging economies, I'm just going to talk about again uh, for the sake of the example of about about Colombia. 
Then we have that just only in 2017, the government just finally just took a bill that is called the spin-off law. Just in 2017, that is just allowing academics to participate also in the revenues if they manage to commercialize one spin-off or, or if they manage to create a spin-off or if they manage to to commercialize one of their patents. So there is a big difference there in terms of the innovation dynamics. Uh, and of course, that also pushes universities in emerging economies towards having their attention, their eyes in on some other activities. And that's probably one of the main differences I would mention now. In in emerging economies, you see that universities, they are, they are embedded in an ecosystem that is often rich in market failures, institutional voids, corruption, and social problems, social issues. Uh, and individuals that are working in such institutions, they also have to learn how to coexist with such problems. So of course, when they have, when they come with the knowledge as a result of their academic activi activity, probably one of the one of the natural reaction towards these social problems is okay. I'm gonna do something with my knowledge in order to solve these problems. But wait, we don't count with probably resources yet. We don't count probably with the accessories we need, uh, and therefore it makes sense to reach out industry for partnerships. But then when you go to industry as an academic with this type of mindset, you also find that in industry, at industries, the individuals working there, they are also embedded in living in the same ecosystem that is that is also composed by the same social problems and so on and so forth. So they share the same concerns about society. And that's one of the starting points of university industry collaboration in in at least as in the ones we had the chance to to study. In, in my research then. So in other words, what I, there is a proposition there and it's, it, it seems that in emerging economies, the university industry collaboration is driven by the necessity of individuals involved in such collaborations in solving a societal problem. And the way they solve it, it doesn't matter. It could be also applying technology, it would be also probably putting a patent to good, to good use, but the drivers of such university industry collaboration it seems to be the case that is just the need of these individuals to solve these social problems. So uh, the approaches of universities, that's also important. That's also something else that comes in the way of, of probably creating a big gap between what is happening in the develop, in the develop between the develop and developing in developing economies. So just the policies, the internal policies at universities, so we have, for example, that in in some universities in in developing econ in developed economies, you come with clear incentives to transfer technology. You count with clear incentives to transfer knowledge to society in any way possible. That might not be the case in emerging economies, particularly because there we count with something that I I, I named or I. I, I, I like to call it like that in my book. Um, I call it university inertia. And is that you are so embedded and so, let's say, drawn into your own work duties, which are, again, mainly in, in the in emerging economies, teaching and research. You are so embedded into your own activities and duties that 
you don't have the time to create a company. You don't have to, the time to think of something else. Just do your doing your work and that's it. But again, when it's about sorting out societal issues, social issues, they count with another, I would say, another sparkle that works differently. Uh, but that's probably something that, I, that I'm going to uh, talk about probably later during this podcast. So, Jason, what would you say are some of the drivers behind the entrepreneurial behavior of the universities in these emerging countries? Yeah, um, as I was saying, one of them is definitely the need of individuals to participate in finding solutions for to solve social problems, to sort out these social problems. That's probably one, one of the main drivers. Um, another driver is that since the interest of university industry collaborations and, and all this human capital that is always growing at universities, but is not being reflected in the number of patents. So universities, they have to find other ways to, let's say, take out of this, out this knowledge out of universities in order to create some societal impact with it, because probably the way of commercializing technologies or knowledge is not yet well developed. Uh, so probably that that at, at least we managed to 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 show empirically how this works in 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 emerging economies. So the first one again, just to summarize, the first one is the this social behavior of the individuals involved in in university industry collaboration, also the entrepreneurial intentions of academics, because this is quite, actually quite interesting, and and that that was part of one of the oh, sub chapters of this book that is not so going to be publishing the book as such, but it served as inspiration. Uh, and is that back in 2017, we measured the entrepreneurial intentions of academics in Colombia. And then we we thought that probably the entrepreneurial intentions were going to be just really low because they don't count with incentives. They don't count with a uh, strong policy that is supporting in a in a top-down way, uh, let's, say, let's say technology transfer or entrepreneurial activities coming from academics. In other words, academic entrepreneurship. Then we thought that probably the results we were going to have were going to be quite disappointing. And that was not the case. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, indeed. It, so we found that they were actually interested in creating a company despite all these ecosystems surrounding them of lack of support. So they counted with lack of support, but despite all this lack of support and policies and infrastructure and and and, and resources, uh they were still interested in creating a company. And then I, I thought to myself, okay, probably that has to do something with the subjective norm. And the subjective norm in 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 terms of what was defined by Adsen et al. in, in 1991 is part of the construct of the theory of planned behavior and were, that is defined as as how much I care of what others think of me. But in this particular context, it, it might mean that probably they don't care at all, despite the fact that that no one no one is supporting them. In academics, actually, the phenomenon of academic entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial universities in Latin America, particularly, is relatively new. They don't even call it like that. So they call it they call them scientific entrepreneurs, or professors entrepreneurs, or something like that. I'm just translating literally from Spanish to English. So, so I think is is also one of the one of the drivers is that they their willingness 
Tyre Willing is on the individual level of academics to transfer technology to create enterprises with their research results or you name it that belongs to this domain of, of academic entrepreneurship. It was really high. They wanted just to create a company with what they had. And and that was quite interesting because by the moment the spin-off law was launched in Colombia, they didn't measure the entrepreneurial intentions of academics. So that was like like a gold mine for me as a researcher because I was the only one holding that information in my hands. Um, that was very interesting back then. So so I think that definitely one of the drivers is that their subjective norm is quite low, meaning that they don't care the lack of support. The other one is their prosocial behavior, which is related to the fact that they want to 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 solve the social problems in which they they inhabit. And also another one that I think is very important is that they often count with champions, with people that are often motivating them. That could be just the colleague that is always inspiring the other. And that we, we had the chance to see in both in industry and also in the university side. So I think that has been probably quite important. Uh, that has been strengthening the, the entrepreneurial behavior of universities in emerging economies. Uh, because again, I think the definition of entrepreneurial universities is quite narrow because it's not, it's not considering what entrepreneurship could do or should be doing for society. So, and there might be a there there might be a proposition there, and is to what extent universities should engage in societal issues in order to solve them with the knowledge they are producing. And I'm saying this in this way because there should be a way in which universities could do that without actually losing money or time because it's not about it's not only about giving things for free it's not only about creating the technology and just put it there on the ground and yeah just use it it's talking about also how are we going to create metrics how are we going to create probably systems that allow universities to measure social impact probably is not there yet not even in developed economies because probably they don't have to measure they don't have a way to measure it it's quite complicated uh but anyways, we are proposing also also ways on how to measure uh, this type of social impact coming from universities uh, in this particular domain. So, Jason, you've talked about some of the challenges for emerging universities a little bit earlier in this podcast. Are there some additional challenges you'd like to mention? Yeah, indeed, indeed. For example, one of them I was mentioning before as a, one of the one of the drivers. But uh, if we look at uh, the other side of the same driver could be also an, a disadvantage and is that uh, I think governments in developing economies, they, can, they, they could leverage the entrepreneurial intentions of some of the academics because not everybody, ha not, not everybody has entrepreneurial intentions, but certainly according to what study, it was a, a statistically significant uh, result that we got. So I think probably one of the challenges of these universities, not only for governments, but also for universities, to how can they leverage the entrepreneurial intentions and drive of academics because they do have it. But this entrepreneurial intention or or this behavior is probably triggered by their need of helping society, by their need of, of probably providing society with some solutions. 
So it's hard to tell so far which one is the precursor or the other one. Although there are some studies, literature is quite generous when it, when it comes to general entrepreneurial intentions, but not which one is the moderator or the precursor of which one. I'm talking about my societal drive is probably my precursor of my entrepreneurial intentions or otherwise. It's hard to tell. So I think probably there is a question there to to be answered probably in a paper in the future is, is <laughs> how can we tell actually what 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 is the thing that comes first, entrepreneurial intentions or or the social drive of academics? That would be one thing. I think it could be a challenge. Another one would be uh, how can we increase the resources at the universities so they can be transformed into. Uh, I'm talking about resources so they can be transformed into a marketable uh, intellectual property uh, because that's actually the core of what makes a university entrepreneurial. So commercializing intellectual property. And in Latin America, we are clearly not yet there. Uh, we are transferring knowledge to society in a way that is important and is tackling societal issues because it seems that there is no other way. In terms of the, 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 the transfer of technology there, we still need to catch up with developed economies. So that's another challenge indeed. Um, and you are you didn't ask that, but I'm gonna dare to say it. Probably one of the challenges in, in developed economies with regards to entrepreneurial universities is that I think they are still quite narrow-minded with regards to intellectual property. Because again, the pervasive focus of universities in developed economies uh, on technology commercialization, I think it has somehow created like money machines that of course it is great because you you then take the profits and you reinvest in the R&D and so on and so forth. And then also the academic is also happy because you're receiving the incentives and also some of the shares they would go to the department and then to the laboratory and that's great, I understand. But I think there we need to be a little bit more creative. And this is a general call for all the, all the universities in the planet, I would say. And is that we as academics and as former practitioners, maybe in the domain of technology transfer, we could as well be more creative there and finding ways on how to transfer intellectual property that is probably uh, having a high value in the market, but we could also find ways in, in which we can transfer high, let's say high, that costly in intellectual property to society in a way that is also useful, in a way that is also uh, accessible to to some stakeholders that probably need such such a technology. Uh, and it implies, of course, top-down and bottom-up uh, changes, of course, uh, inside and outside of universities. I'm talking also about leveraging the other channels, channels that are there, available to transfer technology to society. I'm talking about co-creation, for example, which is allegedly the formation of universities, but it's not scientifically yet recognized as such. But I think, yeah, informally, we could probably call, call it co-creation as the, 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 the fourth mission of universities. So I think governments, they could do better in emerging and also in developed economies. In, the, in emerging economies, governments could foster or could create 
policies that that are a little bit more open and more, let's say, socially friendly in a way that they are not so expensive. They could be also useful in order to tackle some societal problems. And in developed economies, I would say that there is a responsibility there of finding new ways of transferring technology that in a way that universities could create not only economical value, but also societal value. And I think that's very important to think about. Well, Jason, I wanted to ask you about a paper that you recently published earlier this year in Technology Forecasting and Social Change. And in this paper, you looked at university industry collaboration in the emerging countries of Colombia and Bolivia. And one of the things I found really interesting in this paper is that unlike university industry collaborations in developed countries like the U.S. and Europe, collaborations um, in emerging countries are less focused or concerned on intellectual property. And you've mentioned that a couple of times so far during the podcast and also um, less focused on creating startups or engaging in technology transfer. And as you've talked about already, they're driven by the need to solve these major social challenges. And in fact, um, in your paper, you talk about how you found that these collaborations in Colombia and Bolivia really sought to complement their innovative capabilities and positively impact society. Can you tell us uh, a little bit more about this research and some of the reasons why in some of these emerging countries, these collaborations are so focused on social impact? Uh, thank you. Yeah, indeed, that was a very interesting research that we had the chance to to publish in a in a good journal. And for this research, we we conducted interviews and focus groups. It was a qualitative study, basically, because as I said it before, the literature has been quite well documented, qualitative, quantitatively speaking, particularly in in, in developed economies, but mainly when when it comes to explaining how can they foster the commercialization of, of technology? How can they foster, for example, the university industry collaboration? But when it comes to explaining what are the micro processes involved in, in university industry collaboration with such collaboration is seeking to solve a certain societal issue, let's say lit literature is still scarce in that domain. So we wanted to fill this knowledge gap by by conducting research and, and explaining, first of all, uh, what are actually the drivers behind this type of collaborations that, that are not driven by the desires of, of purchasing or commercializing a intellectual property outcome coming from a university. So in order to do so, we, we conducted interviews with, with professors, with uh, entrepreneurs as well that were, let's say, already established in the context of universities, because again, in the context of an entrepreneurial university, but most of these entrepreneurs, they were social entrepreneurs. They were people already with an invention that was that was being used for a greater good, greater good of society. I'm talking about tech-based, socially driven spin-offs. Um, I'm talking about non-profit organizations. I'm talking about also um, directors of incubators of different universities in emerging economies. Um, so of basically two countries, we conducted this research in, in Bolivia and also in Colombia. In Bolivia, we, we gathered data from 17 interviews in Colombia from 16. Uh, and we also, we not only interviewed people 
that were directly involved in the entrepreneurial activity, in this case, in a social entrepreneurial activity or in a some sort of collaboration with industry, because that was also part of the of our sample. But we also had the chance to conduct focus groups with industry representatives, with NGO management managers, with uh, government officials, with other actors of the ecosystems of the of the ecosystem, and also with with other peripheral actors, as for example, chamber of commerce uh, representatives, also with university rectors, uh, with volunteers of this university industry uh, initiatives seeking for social impact. Uh, and also with with the ones that were part of the industry, but were also involved in such collaborations. So we wanted to find out what was going on there. So we captured information from the inside and from the outside of what was going on. Um, and I would say that our findings are quite interesting because one of them was a validation of what we found back then in 2017 with our quantitative study on entrepreneurial intentions. And one of them is that we found that they really don't care if they if the context is not supporting them as long as they count with knowledge. I'm talking about members of academia and also members of the industry. They really don't care uh, if no one is supporting them with supporting them with a clear incentive as long as with their research or with their activities as a result of such university industry collaboration they can find a certain solution for a problem that's probably uh, affecting society in a certain way or the neighborhood of their region. And that's what we call the subjective norm. We call it, we we, we found that it's, it's, it's one of the micro processes that is playing a very important role. Uh, for those that are probably not familiar with qualitative studies, in, in qualitative studies, what we look at is trying to find ways to extend the current theory in a certain topic. In this case, we wanted to, to, to create theory, to develop theory. And this is one of the theories that subjective norm is one of the micro processes involved that might explain the university industry collaboration that is not driven by the commercialization of an intellectual property outcome. But in this case, it's driven by the desires of creating social impact. So this is one of them. Another one is the prosocial behavior of the individuals involved. And this applies also for both uh, individuals uh, coming from academia and individuals also part of the industry as well. The entrepreneurship culture is also another microprocess there. We found that some of, actually most of the individuals that we had the chance to interview, they were coming from an entrepreneurial family uh, and some of them, they 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 belong to a family that were entrepreneurs based of the pyramid or subsistence entrepreneurs as well. So they had already this entrepreneurial vein, which allowed them to to also create a um, or have this some sort of entrepreneurial behavior. Uh, the social identity that which is also also something that was has been coming over and over again throughout this uh, podcast and is that if I see that my community is, is suffering of a, a certain societal issue, and if I come with the knowledge to sort it out, to solve it, or to contribute in any way to solve that problem, I would do it, even though I, if I am an academic or if I am in industry. 
So that's what we call society, societal identity. Um, another one that I also mentioned before is called championing social welfare. Uh, because it's trendy, because it's nice. Let's help communities because everybody else is doing it. Uh, and we often count with this colleague, or we also saw that like, who motivated you through questions like who motivated you to to go and engage in a in a in a university industry collaboration activity for social impact. And they would often say, yeah, I, I don't know, someone that I admire very much in my team. Uh, was the one who encouraged me to engage in this type of activities. So I decided to actively join the initiative, which is very interesting because that we saw it happening at the industry level and also in the university context. Uh, and the last one is the deontic justice, deontic justice, and is mainly related to to the idea that I consider that some things that are happening in my context are not fair. And I have this idea that is driving me towards sorting that thing out. So things that I don't consider fair, I would move with all what I all that I have in terms of my knowledge, my research, who I am, who I have been, in order to solve that injustice. So that's what we call the antic justice. So these are the microprocessors involved in, in, or that might explain the university industry collaboration that we saw as well, that they come in the form of three main channel, channels, or actually there are three main channels uh, that by which such a university collaboration is possible. So the first one is, of course, the challenge, then the usual channel of innovation, which is that one that university, for example, developed a, a new methodology, but industry, they want to gain some sort of good reputation in society. So they would say, okay, we're going to fund your initiative. We're going to fund your hackathon. Okay, we're going to help you to apply your knowledge in a certain community. We're going to sponsor you so you can do it. But we're gonna, you're going to have to train this team of eight members of my industry so so they also engage in the initiative and help you actively actively so we call that let's say a normal challenge channel of innovation because it looks a little bit more of a consulting consultancy activity a little bit another one that is quite common in particularly in developing economies is that one of community service learning it means that as a part of the university courses, you have to apply your knowledge, the knowledge that you are learning in the in the classroom, in order to solve a certain societal problem. But sometimes, sometimes you through this channel of community service learning, you gain this pro-social behavior, this social identity that allows you to champion other of your colleagues or other of your students or your your friends in, in, in your workplace. And we found that this is a channel that is often used by also industry to engage also with societal issues. So they 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 found there an overlap. And that's also that's also working for universal industry collaboration. And the last one is co-creation. Co-creation is is also a channel that is is it's quite, I would say, is fantastic. It's fascinating what you could do with co-creation, and 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 basically, co-creation is it tells that 
you have to design a product, a service, or a solution by making your client as part of, let's say, this brainstorming. So your client has to help you there. And your client has to tell you, actually, no, what I need here is not what you think I need. I'm going to tell you what I need. And now I'm going to be part of the solution by providing you with ideas. In this context, it means that university industry, university and industry, they use co-creation as a channel that is useful for communities to also engage in the brainstorming activities when university and industries, they are finding solutions. So they also include them as part of the solution. Like, okay, so what is exactly the thing you need? How exactly you think we can help you? We have this knowledge. They have these resources. I mean, they, they are the industry. So how can we perform better for you? And then society will tell you exactly what they need if you listen to them. Uh, so that's actually, I would say, three outcomes with social impact that we also found as the as 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 a result of this research that was in my opinion fantastic because it's complementing is is actually complementary to, to what we can find in the in the scientific literature again we think that probably with this research we are opening the door to a whole new universe of new subsets of i would say academic entrepreneurship that are probably unexplored so far. And I'm talking about the social dimension of that academic entrepreneurship and what it means and what it, what it entails for universities, for entrepreneurial universities. Yeah, and I think it's really exciting and interesting research that you've been doing, uh, Jason. And I want to follow up on that a little bit and see um, if you think there are particular challenges or barriers holding or maybe preventing universities from becoming better agents for social change. Yeah, indeed, indeed. I would say, actually, I have the chance to to talk based on my own experience uh, after having conducted more than, I would say, 60 interviews with academics and academic entrepreneurs and technology transfer officers around the world, not not only in in developing economies. Um, And I would say that one of them that I had the chance to capture as a result of another qualitative study that has nothing to do with the one before, but is certainly connected in a certain way, uh, is that academics, they they often don't know. This happens also in, in in developed countries, in developed contexts, that they often don't know that their research, their research could be also oriented to solve a certain societal issue. So if you ask, for example, a, theoret- uh, a theoretical physicist, this person wouldn't know at all. I mean, it's complicated because I already asked that question. They would they would ask me like, yeah, but I actually, I am a pure mathematician. So I'm sorry, your question is probably misplaced. But it's also because university is failing, in my opinion, in developing the social orientation on the whole of each of the university university missions, in my opinion. So we have research, we have teaching, and we have technology transfer and allegedly co-creation. And here is a proposition. If universities manage to develop the social orientation on each of the university's missions, I think we might have something there. Quite interesting. And let me give you one example. So in terms of research, we have channels uh, of social impact. We have problem-based learning. We have community service learning. We have volunteering activities. Uh, we have professional exchanges or internships that students actively use in order to 
contribute to sort out some sort of problem in society. Because it's a practical course, because it makes sense. It, it, and it, you see that this is often the case in the business schools, but I don't know to what extent it's common in engineering, in engineering departments or in, in let's say, STEAM uh, domains. It's complicated because if they don't perform with the same chip. And that's that's what I'm talking about, about installing another sort of chip in the university community by uh, legitimizing what is happening in each of the university's missions. So that could happen, for example, from the perspective of teaching, but what will happen with research? So I, I'm a chemical engineer myself, and I was often told, so what are you going to create in the laboratory so we can commercialize it? Instead of how are you going to sort out a certain societal problem with what you are learning here in the laboratory? Because societal value is not acknowledged as such. It's only economical value. And I'm not a, how, how would I say that? I'm, I, I'm not saying that, that, that I'm, I, our, every, everything I do is for free as long as it is for society. What I'm saying is that the business model is the wrong one because such a business model should be as hybrid enough as to allow universities to also find a certain value in creating or in impacting society in a, in a, in a positive way. So I think that would be one of the barriers, in my opinion. Another one is indeed the university inertia that happens not only in developed economies, but also in developing economies. Uh, because it seems that it, what moves research in developed economies and literature is generous about it is the incentives that academics receive when they transfer their technology or when they create a spin-off company with their research results or some sort of activities of this of this type of of this kind. So that university inertia, I think the government support indeed is is also needed. And I would like to stress a little bit on this on this part. With regards to the government support, so we had seen already what has been happening. Uh, after how long? Probably 40 years of Bidel Act. Yep, exactly. Yep. Yeah, and and then we see that universities they have been completely just let's say focused on creating revenues and profits with research results. But what would happen if governments would create something that allowed universities to uh, find value in some things that in which they currently don't have, don't find value yet? I think that would change everything, in my opinion. For example, let's talk about the, the the rankings. What would happen if the rankings, the university rankings, they would establish as part of their metrics to rank universities' societal impact? What would happen? I'm sure every single university in the planet would be like, okay, now we have to tackle societal issues. Now we don't have to just state in our a university website, but now we have to really, really work towards it. Um, otherwise, they would be badly ranked. And I'm talking about Ivy League universities like Harvard, Stanford, Cambridge, Oxford, and so on and so forth. So I think that's probably one of the barriers is also, I, I already mentioned that, the lack of metrics, incentives. We don't have a clear policy either. Uh, internally or externally that allows universities to create social impact either. And again, it's always this commercial interest of academics in transferring intellectual property in the form of, of patents and, and, and spin-off companies. 
So just to follow up on that, what do you think some of the benefits are, whether they're tangible or intangible for these universities to become better agents of social change? Well, I'm going to talk based on what I have. I have the chance to see in in universities that are already doing that. So one of them is the institutional reputation. I think that's very important. They gain reputation. They Their goodwill gets impacted severely when they engage into a, into solving a certain societal problem. And, and you see the case mainly of private universities trying to, to also engage in, in community service learning actively in, in, in emerging economies, because I know that's probably a way of them of, of creating some sort of marketing, social marketing for them that is also important because, of course, you you already create a link, a bond with the university that sort out the problem that you had in your community. So I think that's smart from them, but uh, I think smart in this case is also being good and it works. Another thing is the scientific reputation. If as an academic, I see that my research is being used for a greater good and in, I inhabit in such a context where I am always facing a societal problem, but somehow my research is being used to solve that out, I think I would be happy. And actually that was also something that we we received as the reports of, as a result of our qualitative study, they were interested in seeing their research applied for the greater good of society. But it, because they are surrounded by all these elements that I was mentioning to you about, it might not be the case in a developed country because there you will you will see an academic that probably is less connected with his or her society because he's probably more busy trying to to commercialize his or her technology or probably to comply with the university metrics that at the moment they are just pushing science towards uh, let's say it's not always the case it's not 100% the case but mostly pushing science towards uh, finding some commercial outcomes um as I, as I mentioned before, academics, they have been affected in developed, in developed, in developing economies by social problems. So it makes sense for them to be part of the solution when they come with the knowledge and, and, and to solve that certain issue. Um, that's what I would have to say about it. Yes. So, Jason, given all that you've been talking about here during this podcast, what can entrepreneurial universities do both in the developed and emerging countries to be better agents for social change? Uh, that's that's a very good question. I would say that in the case of developed economies, I think I would leverage the existence of the channels available there at universities that are relevant for the current technology transfer and entrepreneurship. That is to say, to leverage incubators, to leverage innovation offices or innovation units at universities, science parks, to leverage the already existing channels for university industry collaboration, to start probably transversally developing this social orientation of the university missions. That would be something. Another one, if we look at the 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 fourth mission of universities allegedly which is co-creation uh, i think universities could also leverage the existence of, of this channel this channel to create more let's say customer oriented solutions based on technology that could be something that definitely they could do 
something else is is the community service learning. They could also strengthen that part in the courses of universities. It's like, okay, if you don't find any so, social problem here, because we are in, a, in, a, in the developed world, so try to come up with ideas on how to tackle a certain societal issue that probably is happen, happening somewhere else. Because today is an idea, tomorrow becomes research, and the day after tomorrow becomes a published paper, and then it becomes also something that universities could leverage from as a as an output, as a metric. But also that knowledge is also useful for the country that is actually suffering from this problem. So I think they could they could definitely do more with what they already have without the need of of investing more or doing anything else. Actually, you see initiatives very interesting. Uh, now at the Free University of Brussels, we have an initiative that is the world needs you. And that's the slogan of this year. That's a great slogan. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. And it's creating a, a an environment at the university at the university that is allowing us to think further. Okay, so yeah, I'm developing research and so what? And what about my society? What's going on? Yeah, but my society is not only the neighborhood in which I I inhabit, it's also the entire planet. Uh, you see also another initiative in, I think, if I am not mistaken, is the is Lausanne University, is the Ecole Polytechnique, Polytechnique Fédérale de Lausanne. And they are developing there an initiative that is called Tech, Tech for Impact, which is, okay, so how are we going to create social impact with technology? But then we have to develop the social orientation of the academic entrepreneurship, which is actually a forthcoming paper in the Journal of Entrepreneurial Behavior and Research. Um, we, in that paper, which is also a part of this book uh, that hopefully is gonna come out later this year, um, we are paving the road of universities on how they could develop the social orientation of academic entrepreneurship in their, in their universities without the need of doing too much or investing too much, because I think that's probably one of the bottlenecks of universities, because they think that probably to to have a huge impact in society, they need to really restructure everything and conduct a lot of changes, but that's actually not the case. And we are proving that empirically uh, with, a, with a serious research. So I think that's probably something there to be said as well. I think, the institutional infrastructure, if I'm going to be a little bit more ambitious in the with the answer I'm giving you. So my first part of the answer was probably directed to the idea that universities, they don't have to do much in order to increase their social impact, particularly in developed economies. But if they had the chance to to do more in order to adapt their institutional infrastructure, I would say that there, there are a lot of things to be done uh, from a top bottom way. So I'm talking about adopting new ways of welcoming, uh, I would say, socially friendly technologies in the technology transfer office. So that this episode that happened to me in back, back in 2016 won't happen to 
anyone else in a technology transfer office. So when, a, when an academic comes to the technology transfer office saying, I want to transfer this technology, but for free, and I don't mind I, I intellectual property. I don't mind if university is going to do money with it. Yeah, I know it might be commercialized, but I want to give it for the greater good of society. Then I think the technology transfer office should have something in their, let's say, internal infrastructure, institutional infrastructure that allows them to say, okay, okay, go and talk to, I don't know, to Daisy, because Daisy is the one in charge of technology for impact. And then she's going to guide you through the process. And then, oh, what would you like to do? A social, you would like to establish a social enterprise. Oh, okay, but tech base. Okay, we're going to help you. That should be possible in a technology transfer office nowadays. And particularly after all these hard times that we have to go through with this pandemic and now amidst the war and everything. So I think we need to a little bit uh, open a little bit our minds, at least in this regard. And that's a, that's a change that is hard to, it, it, it won't happen easily if the change comes, let's say, in a, in a bottom-up way. It has to come top-bottom because it, the order has to come from the president's office. Okay, we're going to welcome tech for impact. We're going to welcome uh, uh, the process of a social technology transfer to see how it works, and we're going to create our own metrics. Particularly, here is a proposition for uni private universities, which they don't depend on, on most of the times, particularly for this type of things, on on the regulations of the of the government, uh, let's say. So they are more independent. They could readapt their entire infrastructure in a way that they could also take these technologies out of the context of universities and use them for the greater good of society. But then you would wonder what could be done there on the individual level? And then I would say, okay, so... If we talk about bottom-up changes, this is another finding actually of this forthcoming paper. <laughs> I'm just doing some advertisement. <laughs> and it's related to, to the fact that we found in one of our empirical studies that is also there uh, in the book, we found that when you expose, expose individuals to scenarios where they help others, they learn a sort of individual human capital that is useful for social entrepreneurship, but only when it's mixed with also knowledge and training in entrepreneurship. That is to say that if you have someone who has been exposed in a scenario where that person has been impacted by, by I don't know, a certain societal issue as a result of their classes because that person was involved in a certain sort of community service learning activity, but that person also receives some training in entrepreneurship, that person will be more, most likely driven by the desires of setting up a social enterprise. And that's how you start, at least from a very basic perspective, in shaping the orientation of academic entrepreneurship. That's one of the propositions there, is that we need to expose more individuals to these scenarios where they are facing the problem, when they feel it, when they also talk to 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 the other end and the end is the one that is actually suffering or in pain or or affected by the social problem and that's what actually that's actually one of the ways we propose in the book that the change could could come bottom up but it's of course these two bottom up and the top bottom change 
they they are they are not mutually exclusive they are complementary uh, but certainly uh, there are ways first to show results with activities that professors they can also uh, promote among their their teaching activities as for for instance that one community service learning project based based learning problem based learning volunteering sustainability courses etc um and as for the case of emerging economies that's pretty much the empirical evidence we have collected there so for for the for emerging economies my 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 advice would be to catch up with with what with what the universities are doing already in developed countries uh which is of course adopting this commercial aspect so that they they could play with the definition of heterogeneity of entrepreneurship because so far again academic entrepreneurship has been always focused on the commercial part but it's not it hasn't been considered in the 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 social aspect of entrepreneurship which is the the call that we are making with this book yeah basically that's 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 also something that i that i have to say and and to add up to this to this answer as a result of another set of interviews i had the chance to conduct uh, with technology transfer officers i conducted interviews with them almost at the middle of the pandemic so i collected data uh, at home online talking with these people from top also Ivy League universities in the US and also in Europe here i'm not talking about developing economies it's only developed countries the uh, Ivy League universities and what i saw there is to what, actually one of the questions was to what extent do you think your technology transfer office is prepared to to let's say make make these inventions from a in, in from an intellectual property perspective to make them available for society in case something happens because we need these things to happen quite quickly because otherwise people will die that was what, hap- what was happening with the with artificial devices that were helping people to breathe properly and you saw that there were some some constraints of intellectual property happening there and then of course as a human being you have to question yourself so how is this possible to what extent is more important intellectual property than the life of a person so I realized as a result of this this amount of data I was collecting back then that it is the case not only in developing economies but also in developed economies that probably technology transfer offices they are not ready yet to to tackle societal problems and therefore a big change is needed and that change comes also from the from the head from the top of the universities and could be also strengthened by the little activities that individuals could also execute in a bottom up way so it becomes inspiring for for university presidents to probably start conducting some changes that's what i would have to say about it so jason i wanted to switch gears just real quick and ask you um have you ever looked at equity diversity and inclusion issues whether it's for women or other underrepresented or maybe indigenous groups Thank you for that question. That's actually part of my future research agenda. Uh, as I was stating before, by actually questioning all this big group of literature and also the subsets of this academic entrepreneurship literature, what I'm doing there is to say, okay, there is there there is some more research needed in order to address what is the social side of the force, because we are looking at a coin with two faces. 
but one phase is already quite quite well explored, quite well described and studied. But again, what happens? What could do, for example, technology transfer for indigenous groups? What could do for for women in vulnerable conditions? What could do for entrepreneurs based on the pyramid? What could do, for example, um, uh, technology transfer and entrepreneurial entrepreneurial universities for finding new ways to make these technologies publicly accessible in a way that universities, they don't lose money by doing so. So I think all these questions, they are valid and, and societal issues, they are pretty much divided into one of these subsets, equity, diversity, inclusion. So I would say that probably going deep deeper into one of these topics would be, of course, the next step. Probably that would be material for another book, hopefully to be published in 2000 and 2023, I would say, in 2023. Yeah, we look forward to learning and reading your book when that comes out, because I think that will be an important contribution on that topic. So, Jason, thank you so much for this very fascinating and engaging discussion today. This has really been wonderful. and, And thank you for sharing your research with us. Can you tell us when your book is slated to be published? Indeed. Well, thank you for this opportunity to to disseminate this information well the idea is that the book is out in september that's the that's the main idea although we are working full steam in in one of the chapters that is actually proposing uh, mechanisms metrics and how that entrepreneurial university that is creating social impact would look like so we are basically proposing that in this book also, of course, based on our empirical information or experience, also based on our own observations, and I think it's gonna be it's gonna be probably out, yeah, probably after September or or the latest, probably November. But uh, you would receive a free copy of the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, and and thank you again for all your time today, Jason. This has been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? I would say that probably the easiest way would be by Googling my name, Jason Roncancio on Google, Free University of Brussels of DUB. And then immediately you would, you would find my affiliations, probably my my papers, my working papers, my research gate, uh, website, uh, profile page, and also, yeah, my Twitter account. You, yeah, basically, is, uh, I think I'm very easy to contact. Great. And we'll make sure we put a link to your email in the show notes as well, in case anybody wants to email you. Well, thanks so much again, Jason. This has been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. No, no, no. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And what a pleasure. And really, this was really, really, really nice to me to, to have the chance to disseminate our findings. And also, yeah, to have the chance to probably uh, seed the idea that we need probably universities interested in creating societal impact. Absolutely. Thank you so much again, Jason. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, 
business development, corporate engagement, or startups. Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.